buy access to, say, an artwork. It's digital, it's online, but the token now says that you own it, even though it's still out there and copyable on the internet. This is at least one interpretation of how non-fungible tokens work, or NFTs. This week on Download This Show, there are millions of dollars being poured into the business of buying and selling NFTs, while some still kind of think it's a scam. And in some cases, it actually is a scam. Plus on the show, the $99 million man. Is Apple's Tim Cook really worth that much money? Plus, what happens when technology you store in your body becomes obsolete? And it is the great Wordle revolt of 2022. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. I happen to be broadcasting to you from the middle of a storm, so it sounds like the first five minutes of Twister outside. Uh, I apologise. But I have two wonderful guests (laughs) spread all over uh, the country at the moment. Uh, Creative technologist with Joseph Marks. I was going to call it Joseph Marks. Wrong. (laughs) Joseph Marks. Jesse Hughes, welcome back to Download This Show. Hi, how are you going, guys? I like the rain. I think it adds like a very headspacey effect, Mark. Yeah. I mean, you could imagine it being like the first five minutes of Twister or that scene with... um, Ryan Gosling at the end of the notebook with me like drenched. Either way, both yes, of them are like far more scene, dramatic and scene. interesting than the reality. <laughs> also joining us from Access Informatics is developer extraordinaire. That's right. I'm going with extraordinaire. Peter oh, Marks, yeah. welcome back. Hi, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. All right. First up this week, $1.7 million US in NFTs or non-fungible tokens have been stolen in a phishing attack. Peter, what happened? Well, uh, firstly, let's back up. NFTs, non-fungible tokens are unique data stored on a blockchain and uh, typically they're quite secure. But NFTs work by running scripts, by running a bit of code. And in this case, they're used to associate ownership of things like digital assets like photos or videos. So what happened was uh, some people who were using one of the big uh, NFT marketplaces uh, were fished and uh, they were somehow engineered to sign a partial contract which was then modified to transfer ownership out of their ownership, out of their wallet, uh, without any payment. So it's as if they signed a blank cheque. These were users of the OpenSea marketplace, which is one of the biggest ones, and they've basically uh, done really well through the NFT boom by providing a very simple user interface to the blockchain, but they have struggled with security issues and this one has really caught quite a few of their users, but not all of their users. So it seems like perhaps it was just some sort of subset that had a problem. So talk to me about the the phishing component of this, uh, Jesse. So obviously there we, we'll get into a broader conversation about non-fungible tokens and, and why they are a, a complex idea that some people massively back and some people are a bit sus on. But just to, to start with, how is, it that, um, how is it that the attack was initiated? I think they're still trying to figure it out, but it's probably from an email, <laughs> a dodgy email, but probably. So when we say phishing, phishing is just a form of scam. I can't go past uh, the funny wording of open sea and a phishing attack, just the copywriting <laughs> potential there is just too much. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, pretty much it just means like, you know, you get those dodgy emails and you press on a thing and you give away your details. So uh, what we're talking about here isn't 
isn't necessarily a technological issue, it's a human error. And it's, we see this all the time in tech. You can build the most secure technology in the world, but it comes down to if I write down my password on a piece of paper and leave it on the fridge, you know, someone someone's can get in. So I think, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting hearing from OpenSea because they, they've gone through and checked everything that they have and they don't feel it's an issue on, on their end. They think it is a, um, a human error issue from some of the users who gave away or gave, like, yeah, gave that information when they shouldn't have. If, if as a curious test, if um, you want to open your Instagram, <laughs> in your Instagram messages, you will probably have a whole bunch of, like, scammy things which you will block. And so in those, like, message requests and stuff, a lot of the time you're getting things being like, oh, you know, like, come and check this or sign this. You can get those dodgy emails where people are trying to be, oh, well, actually in Australia we have all those ones where people call your telephone pretending to be Telstra or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a different service. So... Um, what we are talking about here is people under cybersecurity is a human responsibility as well, <laughs> um, and so unfortunately that's what's happened um, so far. Is what they're saying has, has happened is this human error. Do you know the sad part is I just opened up my Instagram and today not a single scammy DM. <laughs> I, I'm actually feeling a little like a little bit left out. Are you Why left are you out? Scamming? Oh, go okay, take guys. Bit. I mean, not a lot. <laughs> Oh, no, I, I cleaned mine um, yesterday. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm asking for it here. So uh, when we talk about non-fungible tokens, we, we, let's let's get into that a little bit because it is a term that has popped up around. Let's talk about exactly what kinds of things were taken here. Uh, do we know what kinds of non-fungible tokens were taken, Peter? Well, some of the tokens were popular ones like the uh, little uh, cartoony characters from the board Ape Yacht Club. And uh, I think there were 254 in total, and that's quite a lot of money. I mean, whether NFTs really denote ownership is up for debate. I mean, I think this whole thing is just a convention that says if you buy the NFT that is associated with a piece of digital art, then you somehow own the digital art. But I don't think that's actually been tested legally. And there have been a lot of misunderstandings where people have bought an NFT for something and then they thought, well, then they can on-license that artwork or uh, license to other people and the artists have said, no, no, that isn't what you bought. So what an NFT actually is, is still, I think, a little bit unclear. Some would say that perhaps it's a big Ponzi scheme and uh, the prices are high because people want to get in early in case it you know, gets really good later on. But I mean, uh, crypto, cryptocurrency obviously has utility in general terms, you know, being able to do transfers across the world instantly or very quickly. Um, and crypto uh, such as Ethereum that can run scripts has some really fantastic abilities, this, this idea of uh, having a contract where you can say, okay, we're going to have a contract where I do something for you, then you do something for me, then a third party does something, and at the end of it, if everything goes correctly, then the payment gets transferred through. So it can do multi-way contracts, which is a great piece of functionality, I think, has value. But in this case, there was, I think, some sort of uh, weakness in the Wiven protocol, which is what runs on Ethereum, and it allowed a contract to be signed which wasn't completely described. So in other words, somehow the phishing got someone to say, yep, I agree with this contract, it can go ahead, even though the extra steps hadn't been put in yet. And that is a weakness in the protocol at the moment. And maybe it's just because NFTs are pretty new and people are still finding, you know, uh, potential exploits. But it does seem like some of the older original NFTs have some problems that need to be fixed. How do you go about explaining NFTs, Jesse? Because I feel like this is sort of something that must, you know, it's grown so much, but 
yeah. there is a, like a conceptual struggle with it that I'm not. I'm going to be really honest with. I can't help but look at it and go, where does the value lie in something that is digital and copyable at ease? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's break this down. So I think what you're thinking about is a very Web two mindset. So what we're, what's happening at the moment is this transition into Web three, and that is more of this movement towards. Um, like ownership. We haven't really seen ownership on the web before and now we're going to this next phase where, um, let's take the Bored Ape Yacht Club example. So this is like a picture of a monkey if anyone's seen it. They're super cute, they're quirky. Anyway, they're, they're, worth, a whole, they're worth a whole bunch of cash. And so if you are the owner of one of these NFTs, it's almost like being part of like a really exclusive club. It's called, um, they're like a PFP NFT. You know, we can't have enough acronyms here, um, which is a profile picture I don't know what any of those things Yeah, <laughs> yeah. which um, recently... You know, Twitter has been able to facilitate um, authentication saying, like, yes, you are the owner of this NFT. I'm going to link it to your Twitter account. So, like, where you have your um, kind of picture that represents you, um, now people are using um, these kind of exclusive, special, scarce um, NFTs to represent themselves virtually online. And so we're kind of stepping into when we go into Web3 and Metaverse stuff, like that's going into um, how you represent yourself in this digital world. And for if we look at how much, you know, people associate how they present themselves online already with like Instagram and stuff like that, like how, you know, I look online. When we go into Web3, that's all, that just goes, takes it up a whole other level. So that's kind of like on the board ape thing. Um, more, I suppose, a tangible like <laughs> uh, way of thinking about these NFTs. Um, like Coachella, for example, um, released some last week where whatever it was like a 10 golden 10 Coachella golden tickets and so if you're the owner of one of these NFTs you can go to Coachella every single thing for infinity you know for 100 years or something like that and so what what is more of a way for us to think about it it's almost like a, you know that in that use case it's like a gift card almost you know it's like saying oh I have this so now I get this in the physical world. Um, I think we're having a really hard time kind of getting our head around NFTs because we are thinking in a very like, yeah, Web2 mindset of, of transaction-based or, you know, I get this and this is happening. Whereas in Web3 where we're going into, it's more of like our digital virtual world is of equal importance and is of equal value to our physical world. So yeah, it's a really interesting space to see this move. Like commercially, if you look at any of the big players, you've got um, like... Nike, Disney, any any of the big ones, um, they are all hiring like head of head of metaverse or head of NFTs or head of Web three, like because everyone's trying to figure out what is this technology <laughs> and how are we going to move forward with it because it is actually changing business models and changing revenue. You've just opened up an entire new possibility for revenue um, if we. I keep going on about it, but you can go into like say artist tokens where if we imagine. Um, you know, Justin Bieber, Justin Bieber has a, a Bieber coin, so his own kind of cryptocurrency. And if you uh, maybe buy a Bieber, I don't know, picture a picture of him or something like that, then that can get you access to uh, discounts on merchandising. You can get you into these things. And so what it's, it's just a whole, it's a whole different possibility. And I think we mentally are just picturing like buying a, buying a picture right now. Like that seems to be like what our brain can handle, but it's so much more than that. It's about, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's honestly the possibilities are endless, and I think in the next year we're going to see some insane things happening and a real shift towards this becoming part of business models. If we are going to use the art analogy, like you can have a hundred prints of the Mona Lisa, right? You can print it, I can frame it, it can be in my house. I have a picture of the Mona Lisa. It's not the Mona Lisa, and you know it's not the Mona Lisa. And the only way of verifying who has the Mona Lisa is by verifying it through all these galleries who say no, this is absolutely definitely is the 
this is the one and only, this is, this is it kind of thing. And so value is, uh, you know, we assign value. Something doesn't necessarily have value. It's what we assign to it. So, um, and, and that yeah. value comes Something from how much other what people somebody else want. Is willing to pay for yes, it. exactly. And this is where the whole thing of scarcity kind of comes into play of just like they'll do certain drops where they'll say, oh, there's only 50 of these. I'm only dropping 50 of these. You know, you take a celebrity or I'm only dropping 10 or I'm only doing this collection or something. And so by kind of maintaining that, it, it does increase the value. Yeah. A good analogy <laughs> might be a photograph of Justin Bieber compared to an autographed photograph of Justin Bieber. In this case, though, the autograph is on the blockchain that says that this particular photograph, even though it's identical to all the others you can print out yourself, this one is somehow connected with the the star, you know, with the, with the person, the, the sporting star or whatever it is, because it's the signed one that the blockchain says you own this one that is connected. So it has more value. I, I think there's something in it. I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, we all want a way where artists can make money and can have a connection with their audience, you know, things like Patreon and so on are, are doing that. And maybe this is a way that a fan can be more than just having a copy of the art they also have this connection, this signed connection. Uh, there's something in it, I think. I just want everyone to know that I just double-checked and uh, Bieber coin is trading very, very, very low right now. And even though I would <laughs> never give you financial advice, I'm just saying, if you want to get in, this is about as in. close to the bottom floor as it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> but again, definitely not financial advice. Do not listen to me. I clearly don't know anything. Uh, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, culture and Justin Bieber's cryptocurrency news. Uh, 99 million US dollars. That is how much money Tim Cook potentially might be making, except there's a shareholder revolt over at Apple. Peter, explain it to me. What's happening? Yes, an investors advisory group has called for Apple shareholders to vote against the $99 million pay package that's been awarded to Apple CEO Tim Cook. Now, Cook's pretty wealthy. He's estimated to be worth about $2.3 billion US dollars, according to Forbes. And he has spoken out in the past about the problems of social and economic inequality. So uh, someone calculated that his pay is 1,400 times that of the average employee. So the big question is, is he worth it? Um, I was an Apple employee for a few years back in the 90s. It was a pretty bad time for Apple. And there used to be stories in the press all the time saying, "Will Apple? You know, when will Apple go broke? When will they go out of business? In 2011, uh, Cook took over Apple. The company's market cap, market valuation was $348 billion. And now they're worth $3 trillion. You know, he, he was brought in by um, Steve Jobs. Uh, when, and when, when he was very sick, he put uh, uh, Cook in as the CEO. Now, Jobs was obviously really a good uh, product guy. But Cook's genius is in supply chain and logistics. And you've got to say he's been incredibly successful at turning the product image, say iPhones, into a billion plus of these things which have been manufactured and shipped on time all over the world. So, you know, is he worth it? Well, he's added a huge amount of value to the company. And of course, you know, if you are a billionaire, uh, then even $100 million probably doesn't make a huge difference to his lifestyle. So they probably do need to, you know, to reward him to give him a fair bit of money. I mean, I think we're seeing recently like the importance of having uh, good leadership, or at least uh, public-facing, likable leadership. Um, we, I mean, if you look at what's fallen <laughs> with Facebook or Meta That's recently, such a swipe. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like I don't know. He makes the company look good. Um, yeah, I, I think. He does, though, uh, 
Yeah, and I think the we are talking like the money we're talking about here is like trillions. Like, how can someone get their head around that much money? Um, I don't know. I th- I think with post pandemic or p- during pandemic, like leadership and it is has just been so important. And so I think he's clearly done a good job of getting the ship through it all. Does he need that much money? No. Does anyone need that much money? No. Um, but yeah, I, I think that no, when you're me, looking at profits, me, like they've money. made, I'll, I'll take we it. need it. Okay, yeah, we need it. We're going to invest it all in Bibacoin and then <laughs> <Bibacoin. laughs> and then it's all just going to be devalued. <laughs> People sometimes think this show doesn't take technology seriously enough and I'm going to point them towards this episode with the beaver coin. All right, stepping away from Apple now, something a little bit darker here on Download This Show. There are hundreds of people around the world who've had retinal implants uh, installed to improve their sight. They're now facing a particularly uncertain future as the company that they relied on has rendered the technology kind of obsolete. Peter, what's happened with Second Sight? Yeah, they had a a first generation of a retinal implant which gave sight to blind users. This was the Argus One, and that's now an obsolete product. But uh, And that came out in 2004. But unfortunately, the company has moved on to the Argus 2 and they've dropped support for the first one and further, they're in financial trouble. So what's happening is if uh, it's working, that's great. But when people with the Argus One implant started to get faults developing, it broke down, they've now found that they can't get it fixed. So they've got a bio implant from a company that has uh, unable to support it anymore. You might be all right for a while, but eventually faults will arise. And of course, being an implant, it's getting it removed or repaired is going to be expensive. You're going to need surgery. And of course, it's risky. It kind of, you know, it reminds me of uh, Minority Report and Blade Runner, you know, the eye maker for Tyrell and, and all of this sort of stuff. It's it's really personal, but it's just an, another example of one of the many kinds of technologies that do get obsolete rather too quickly and leave consumers with products they can't use. This idea of obsolescence in your body is actually quite terrifying, Jesse. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and I think we're moving, like, we're, I mean, all of the envisioning, we're hoping to go into like the Neuralink, you know, like p- plugging things into our brains and plugging things into our eyes. It's like, as soon as you start um, interfering with the human body, surely that has to have some sort of like cradle to grave design principle in it of saying, we're going to take responsibility to the end of <laughs> like your life for this product, because the the people who have been impacted by this now stuck with pieces of technology that don't work in their body. And the risks of removing that are, you know, really high. The costs involved are super high. And so I think whether this was poor planning from the onset or whether um, it, yeah, it just, I think as a, as a designer, we talk about human ethics, well, design principles and ethics all the time. So especially when you're getting to something that um, does impact the human form, there has to be some level of responsibility. Like, sure, if my iPhone, which I buy, like, I think, I don't know how long they offer support for, but you have a window of support, um, but it doesn't matter if that breaks. A human, it does matter if there's that support, you know, goes away or isn't, isn't completely substantial. So, Peter, these people who are, you know, living with a vision impairment, do they have any recourse with uh, this company? Are they third-party suppliers? I mean, th- these are all the sorts of questions we, I guess we're going to have to get into. Yeah, so in the software business, this is a problem too. You might get some software developed by uh, a company and then you're running it and that company disappears. So we have a system called escrow where what you do is the source code for the software is placed in a bank vault, whatever, somewhere secure, and it's kept. And if the client comes back and finds that the developer is no longer 
around or no longer willing to support the software, they can request to get the software out of escrow and get someone else to work on it. So, yeah, maybe we could have a thing where the third parties pop up. You know, you could take your eye, uh, your uh, uh, retina implant uh, down to a little desk in the uh, shopping centre and uh, get a guy there to um, take out his screwdriver and uh, do some work on it. And that might be possible if the whole design was shared and was kept somewhere. But, yeah, this is, you know, it has happened already, I believe, with pacemakers, some early pacemakers, but typically pacemakers have a fairly, I don't know what the life is, it's not not an infinite life, so they do have to get changed over every now and then. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's just a whole new world of devices that stop working. I've got Internet of Things switches that um, no longer work because the apps disappeared. I've got uh, zip drives and DAT tapes, and I'm sure, you know, we've all got CDs and DVDs, and soon we won't be able to play those. So it's, it's frightening to see how short the life of technology actually is. Even old tablets um, stop working. They won't even surf the internet because the root certificates in them expire. So things that the the hardware works perfectly well, but for some reason, they just go out of date and become useless too quickly, I think. It's interesting what you're saying there, Peter, is sort of like having this kind of technology open source. It's like if you are the, the, the IP, if you have the IP of, you know, how this thing was built and then decide to not go forward with it, the worst case scenario, you imagine that technology or that intellectual property being stored away and locked up no one else can play with it (laughs) Um, like that is just kind of it raises a whole bunch of questions in terms of yeah how do we make sure that if if companies do go under um, then how can we ensure that the the underlying technology and that that is is available for others to pick up where they left off and um, take it forward yeah, so that's what escrow does in software. You don't, the software developer doesn't want to give out the software because their competitors could get it. They don't want it to be open source or, or perhaps there's security reasons. So escrow is a way where it's put away securely uh, for a small annual fee and if the developer disappears, then the client can get access to it. So, yeah, I think the, there's a model there that could work with medical technology as well. I'll bet it already does. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. Our guest this week, Jesse Hughes, is a creative technologist with Joseph Mark and from Access Informatics, Peter Marks. A lot of Marks in this show today. Uh, And finally here on the show, have the New York Times ruined Wordle? Lots of people will know Wordle as the daily word quiz that has enraptured the world over the summer. Of course, it was uh, purchased or licensed for a gazillion dollars to the New York Times, a gazillion not being a reported number, uh, to the New York Times. And some people have argued that, A, it's gotten harder, and B, the language used is often an American set of spelling, which is placing the rest of the world at a disadvantage. And so my question to you, Jesse Hughes, is... Have the New York Times screwed up Wordle? I'm an avid Wordle Wordler. Is that was that what we're naming ourselves? Um, yeah, I'm I'm daily. I'm hooked. Um, oh, I mean, I don't know. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a win win here because we've got the so the guy who made it, Josh Wardle. He was a software engineer in Brooklyn. His like partner loved word games, so he just created this like cute little game for them. This is what software engineers do in their spare time, right? Um, and yeah, yeah. and. <laughs> This, com- <laughs> this completely just boomed. Everyone fell in love with it. It's such a simple, such a simple game. Um, but it's interesting. So when he when he was building the kind of database of words, he had about 2,500 words and he's like, this should last a few years. Um, but yeah, some of these words have upset people just because they're a bit confusing. Um, I don't, okay, here we go. Give a test. I can't pronounce the word. Calc. Who knows what calc is? Mm-hmm. And you're not allowed to calc. Google it. Yeah, C U A L K. Hold on, is it C A U? Calcium or C- calico? 
No, it's it's about it's a material to seal joints, right? It's C-A-U-L-K. Yeah, I actually knew that. Yeah. Oh wow! Oh wow! You're clearly out. a handyman. We've Corking. got a handyman on the call. Corking. Hardly. <laughs> um, and so we've got like uh, just a whole bunch of words that was uh, this week. Um, but yeah, there's just a whole bunch of words that I think people aren't overly familiar with. Um, the appeal to the game is that it is fun and easy and simple. It is like this pandemic um, medicine almost where you can for, for three minutes go on, shut down and just play with some silly little words. Um, so I feel like there has been this kind of why are they making it harder? Um, whether they are or not, um, I don't know we'll, whether that's actually happening on the back end because um, Josh did did have about, you know, 2,500 words that he'd already put through it. So, um, But they're also like the New York Times. I think they want to be a bit, um, what's the word? They want to show off Times their Ian. words maybe? Yeah, Times, they want to educate, mad, you know. They're, they're <laughs> mad for the word Timesian. They, their reporters <laughs> use it all the time. It's also not a word that means anything. Peter, what do you think? Has Wordle changed under our feet? I think it's important to make the point that um, the game wasn't very successful early on and it's very similar to existing games like Giotto and there was a TV show in the US called Lingo. So it's not very new. The thing that really got it to take off was the fact that you could produce a graphic showing how you went through the game. How what uh, So different letters show up in different colours according to whether the letter is present in the word or whether it's in the right place. So people were started sharing that image of the squares and that was the virality that really made the thing take off. And it is a bit of genius, but who would have predicted that? So it just, I think there's a lot to learn there about how to get something to go viral like that. They, the Times has, you know, done some responsible things. They've taken out some words, uh, wench and whore and slave that um, perhaps would have been uh, inappropriate. And yes, there's uh, some difficult words in there as well. But I mean, this is sort of along the lines of a crossword. It's not supposed to be too easy. And of course, it has diverged from the original one, so that shared experience has gone. Um, I mean, it is a US publication, and uh, I suppose the alternative might be to make some sort of version for every country, but why would the New York Times, um, you know, worry about that? Their, their crossword isn't internationalised. I should say that it's interesting the point about social media because I've actually muted the word Wordle oh, <laughs> because right. I'm the Scrooge McDuck of internet <laughs> joy. I've muted it on Twitter. So it's like it suddenly went from being everywhere. I'm like, this is lovely. I'm so happy for you. Get out of my feed. Well, what's amazing about it, though, is that people haven't ruined the fun for others. Like, it's this mm. unsung thing that people don't share the word. Like, I could easily go and post what today's word is and ruin it for everyone. But people haven't. And in a in an internet society where people love to bring others down, like, it's pretty impressive that this one, we're like, you know what? We're going to let you have this. We're going to let you have your three minutes of joy in the day. Um, and then we can but keep no all more. the, the no trolling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> By the way, Jesse, I, I worked out you should be a word dilettante. That should be the name for a fan oh. of, of Wordle, a word dilettante. Oh, word dilettante. I do have a master's degree mm. in screenwriting, and so we'll have there to we'll have to yeah add to the words. I'm gonna I'm gonna this will be a good test to see if I've really been paying attention. <laughs> Get the vocab fully increased. Maybe that's what the New York Times are trying to do is like really improve our vocabulary and you know push us of forward. Five as letter nation. words. <laughs> Of five, of solely yeah, yeah. five-letter words, yes. <laughs> all right, that's all we've got time for on the program this week. Uh, Jesse Hughes, thanks so much for being back on the program. 
Always good to chat, Mark. And if you enjoyed listening to Jessie on this program, Jessie's actually going to be talking at the South by Southwest Festival. Uh, she's giving a talk about technologists and the future of story. Jessie will be getting into the nitty-gritty of an exponentially shifting world on storytellers. She'll be talking about NFTs, the metaverse, and much more than that. Um, so you can follow along Jessie on socials to work out when and where she's talking about that. And Peter Marks from Access Informatics, thanks so much for coming back on Download This Show. Always a pleasure. I'll be giving a talk to my uh, grandson who's two weeks old. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure he will respond completely enraptured by the sound of your voice, unlike my children that ignore me in my house. My name's Mark Fidel. I know, my life is sad. And with that, I shall leave you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. Download This Show.